0: This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me in the studio to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst, an expert in fire ecology and management from the University of Melbourne, joined me to talk all about bushfire behaviour as well as the proposed Bushfire Royal Commission – and what we have and haven't learned from previous inquiries and royal commissions into bushfires. Then, finally, Elisabetta Ferrari, lecturer in Italian Studies at the University of Melbourne, joined me in the studio to talk about the work of Italian film director and actor Vittorio De Sica ahead of the upcoming retrospective held by the Melbourne Cinematheque. Now I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio Ben Altham who's come in to talk all about federal politics and um, we will be continuing on from where we left off last week from the uh, Nationals Leadership Dramas and uh, we saw some more drama happening yesterday. Welcome, Ben, and how are you?
1: Yeah, good morning, Amy. I'm okay, thanks, mate.
0: That's good. Yeah. yep. yep. You probably are quite attuned to humid weather, aren't you, Ben?
1: I do like this weather, actually. Yeah, it yeah, reminds me of home.
0: <laughs> that's, that's you and not many others, maybe. Depends how, how Melbourneian people truly are, I think.
1: Yeah, true, true. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can take the boy out of Brizzy, but apparently you can't take the humidity out of my hair. <laughs>
0: It's actually doing all right today. So that's uh, pretty coily. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now let's talk about um, this MP who, to be honest, I don't think was on that many people's radar because he's not particularly prominent. He's a backbencher. Lou
1: O'Brien. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think many people would know who Lou O'Brien
0: is. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nationals member in Queensland. Uh, yes, he has uh, quit the Nationals which um, sounds like it's very dramatic but actually means very little
0: in practice uh, In yeah. Practice,
1: very very little at all so he he's quit the federal national party room but he remains in the LNP how uh, does
0: that work Ben? <laughs>
1: good question <laughs> Amy I don't exactly know how they they work that one out I but.
0: mean think about it so if he's quit the national party so he's not a member right
1: so he's quit the party room, mm. I believe, um, but he's still a member of the Queensland LNP, so the merged entity. So he doesn't want to entity.
0: sit in the party room with his colleagues. Apparently
1: as- not. But he's going to turn up to the joint party rooms. So all the coalition, when they all get together, liberals and nationals, he's going to turn up to that.
0: Did he give a rationale for this bit? Uh,
1: <laughs> he's He's upset with the way Barnaby Joyce has been treated. Oh. Yes. Um, Some feelings have been hurt there in Barnaby's challenge for the leadership. And um, he's taken himself – well, in fact, he's taken himself all the way to the deputy speakership because after he decided to leave the Nationals' party room, Labor pounced in one of those kind of tactical parliamentary manoeuvres that actually no one cares about except political journalists and got himself appointed the deputy speaker, which – what does that mean? Well, again, not that much really. It means he fills in for the current speaker – I bet you don't know who the current speaker is either. Tony. Tony, that's right. Tony Uh, Smith. Tony Smith, the uh, member for Chisholm, is he? No. I can't remember what what he is now. No,
0: no, he's
1: not the member for Chisholm. Not Chisholm. He's a a Victorian Liberal. Um, Casey. There you go, Casey. Yep. Um, He's in the the division of Casey. Um, So he's been the speaker actually uh, in the last parliament and still the speaker in the current parliament. So he will be the Deputy Speaker Lou O'Brien. When Tony Smith is, you know, otherwise indisposed, and
0: I think he has responsibility for the Federation Chamber, which a lot of people would have no idea what that is. Too. Oh
1: yeah, him. it's like the sort of, um, I guess it's the the Vodafone Arena of uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the Federal Parliament. <laughs> so it's the second chamber uh, where you know various committees uh proceeded and. Um, you know, uh, things that are not the main business of the House of Representatives are discussed.
0: Yeah, yeah. There are presentations there sometimes. Mm -hmm. People give Uh lectures. When did you give your
1: speech, Amy? I
0: was due to be in the Federation Chamber and then they put me in a different lecture theatre which was actually it was like a real theatre. It mm. was kind of like a yeah. It was kind of scary.
1: Did it have a special name? You know, was it? Uh, it sort of, you I know, don't remember
0: now. It did have Edmund a special Barson name. Edmund
1: Barton Hall or something. I like have that. to
0: look it up. If you, <laughs> but um, it was really. I actually had to go the back way, and we went through the swimming pool nice. entrance, nice. Nice. so I could see yeah. all the the gym and the swimming pool yeah. in Parliament House, yep. which I've got to say is very exclusive and pretty oh, impressive.
1: Yeah. yeah, it was Tony Abbott in there.
0: Uh no, 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 I it's think disappointing. yeah, there weren't many people there at the time, no, like, working out, not doing surprising. probably number crunching instead, yes, yeah, yes, not On the counting phones. laps, yes,
1: yeah, um, so yeah, look, um, you know, what does that mean? look, in the scheme of things, not much really it's a, it's a bit of a it shows that there's plenty of disunity in the national party, but we knew that already.
0: Yes, we certainly did. Um, And the other part of the fallout, we didn't get to cover this because the um, reshuffle had not occurred, but there weren't, too many major changes. One of the changes that's relevant for our discussion last week was Darren Chester. Um, he retains Veterans Affairs but it is now a position in Cabinet.
1: Yeah, Chester gets sort of elevated up into the Cabinet as a recognition for his, you know, um, his good performance over the summer and I think also simply to to get a, a, another Nationals into the Cabinet.
0: Mm. And in terms of the other positions, we saw one of the um, front benchers who sided with Barnaby Joyce, Matt Canavan, who's been pretty, particularly controversial over his career. He is now no longer in cabinet.
1: Yeah, Canavan. Well, Canavan actually quit um, before the leadership spill, uh, and took himself to the back bench where he now remains. Mm. Um, and this sort of frees him the wrong up. team. <laughs> yeah, frees him up to do more kind of rabble rousing and so – He's actually been um, even more vocal over the last week, actually.
0: Indeed. And it reminds me, given that he was the Resources Minister Mm. and we've had a little bit of discussion uh, around resources and coal with the interview uh, on Insiders, Richard Miles didn't do too well on this interview and it's been um anthony albanese's had to do a little bit of damage control in trying to actually um establish and clarify labor's position on coal and new coal plants
1: yeah so um someone in labor let richard miles out to talk to the media which generally results in some kind of gaffe or other
0: and he's the deputy leader though this is the disturbing part
1: (laughs) People forget that. Uh, he's one of those kind of faction bosses that has risen largely without trace. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, look, he's, he's got a safe seat in Corio um, and he's um, he's uh, well-connected in the Victorian right of the Labor Party. Um, but but he, he's um, he's sort of a kind of right-centrist kind of Labor guy. And, and so it wasn't that surprising that when he got on Insiders, he pronounced that he was in favour of coal mines and he's in favour of Uh, you know, Australia continuing to export coal, I I don't think that should be that... You know, it shouldn't be that controversial in the sense that that's labour policy. That's actually currently Mm. labour policy and has been for a very long time. The problem comes, of course, that when you look at what that policy means, that policy means, you know, the destruction of the planet as we know it. So um, so it's one of those cases where the centrist, moderate, you know, normal party position is actually, in truth a very radical position. Um, and so, yes, there was quite a bit of blowback from Miles as saying, you know, we need to open more more coal mines and people saying, well, how can Labor possibly support the Paris Agreement, you know, a livable planet, you know, mm. any kind of credible climate policy at all if you're in favour of opening new coal mines, let alone not closing the current ones.
0: Exactly. And he kind of deferred it and um, was trying to, I guess, not have to stake his claim on either side in a way by saying it's up to the market to decide all of these things. And it's not really important what I think, but they do support it. If that's what the market decides, they just won't subsidise it using government funds.
1: Yes. Well, this is the kind of um, tightrope that they've been trying to walk for a long time on the Carmichael mine up in Queensland, the the Adani mine, the notorious Adani mine. Um, This was in fact Shorten's line that proved so disastrous during the federal election, where he pleased nobody, neither environmentalists nor Queensland resource workers and uh, North Queensland voters. Uh, and, but that, that's the kind of tightrope that they've decided on, which is like sort of, oh, we're leaving it to the market. Which, when you think about it, for a party of Labor, uh, a party that's supposed to be uh, opposing the party of capital and, and supposed to believe in at least limited intervention in the economy and the market, it's quite a weird position to take.
0: Yeah, it is particularly neoliberal to say that. Well,
1: I mean, let's just break it down to brass tacks. I mean, if you say you believe in the market, I mean, what do you think about the market as it's operating at the moment. I mean, the market mm. is destroying the planet, right? Nicholas Stern, who did the report way back in the mid-2000s for Tony Blair on climate change, called climate change the largest market failure in history. So uh, I think sort of relying on this idea that it's all for the market to decide, it's a it's an easy fig leaf for Labor to wear, but I don't think it's fooling anyone.
0: Yeah. And uh, there was another development a few days ago Um, And not really that surprising, um, given what we did see during the election, which was so many grants to different sporting clubs. We discovered that there was another $150 million sports fund, (laughs) which was supposed to go to female change rooms and other facilities. And uh, it was spent and promised and given away without opening the process up to public applications.
1: Yes, well, $150 million here, $150 million there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money, aren't mm, you? You are. Um, I guess, you know, th- this is just another one of those spending spending pots of money that the liberals uh or the indeed the coalition spent before the last election. Yeah, unlike the uh the sports rorts that Bridget McKenzie fell on her sword over, this was uh never opened up as you say to public application. So the government mm. just spent it how it wanted. Uh, Well, that's not that unusual in terms of the way the government spends money. I mean, the government is allowed to spend the money. That's sort of how the the system works. But yes, it was absolutely another pork-barrelling fund that was targeted towards marginal electorates um, and which funded a bunch of stuff that in many cases was duplicating existing infrastructure or just stuff that wasn't needed. Um, But what it what it served as was as um, providing great PR for the coalition MPs seeking to get elected and to, you know, to portray Morrison in particular as a kind of everyday bloke, a sporty guy, baseball cap wearer, daggy dad. And that, of course, as we know, was quite successful during the election campaign.
0: Yes, well, it's really uh, meant that the coalition could uh, say that they truly are the foremost uh, supporter of sports in Australia Uh, as compared with the arts, which now doesn't even have its name in a portfolio.
1: Yes, um, I think Nick Fyke from The the Monthly was joking, you know, like (laughs) imagine if they were doing this with arts funding. And, of course, Mm -hmm. you you can't imagine that because uh, they wouldn't have done it. and I think it sort of shows what the coalition's priorities are. But it comes in the backdrop of, of a stench of corruption for this government that I think is getting stronger. You know, um, over the weekend, we saw that the Australian Federal Police dropped their investigation of Angus Taylor's forgery uh, investigation. That For those of you who haven't been following this, this is Angus Taylor, the climate minister. Uh, he somehow got his hands on a document that purported to say that Sydney Lord Mayor Clover Moore had been flying all over the world, spending lots of money on international flights and racking up a big kind of emissions uh, footprint of her own. Um, But when Clover Moore's office had a look at this document, it turned out to be a forgery, not the real document that was actually in the Lord Mayor's office. So people then asked, how did Angus Taylor get a hold of this document that purported to show the Lord Mayor doing all this international travel? And we've never really got to the bottom of it. It was referred to the Australian Federal Police for an investigation, basically to ask... Or, you know, did someone doctor the document? Did someone actually forge it? You know, Because it was released to a, a, a journalist mm. at the
0: Daily Telegraph. And there was different formatting, like there yes. were visual differences. It's
1: very, very transparently someone's taken a PDF off the Sydney Law <laughs> Bear's website and changed a few things around in Photoshop, right? But uh, somehow or other we've never been able to get to the bottom of how this has happened and now the Federal Police have dropped their investigation. Well, you might say it's not the most interesting thing for the Federal Police to be spending their time and resources on but I think it shows that you know there's a politicisation of the federal police that is concerning Um, it shows that you know I mean look should federal ministers be allowed to release blatantly forged documents in the pursuit of political advantage? I mean, that's a really interesting question, isn't it, in a democracy? And I think it kind of shows just the erosion of standards, the erosion of norms that seems to be happening apace in the Morrison government.
0: Yeah. And it was um, important, I think, that uh, some <laughs> hypocrisy, or at least um, some interesting comparison, was made by ABC investigative journalist and head of that department, John Lyons, yes, pointing out that the fact that the AFP is still investigating two ABC journalists over their reporting of um, the Afghanistan uh, issue—that certainly was a matter of public interest—and even potentially, is it still Anika Methurst? being investigated yeah, as well.
1: Yeah, we understand that the investigation is ongoing. Um, it's worth remembering that no charges have been laid, I don't think, in those investigations yet. Mm. Um, but neither have they been dropped, according to the federal police. Um, and if you cast your mind back a couple of years when the AWU got raided, um, there were something like 30 police there uh, for that raid which turned out to be thrown out of court in the end turned out to be unlawful that raid so uh, i think there's a worrying politicization of the afp um and it shows once again you know for the 274th time we need a federal icac we need a federal anti-corruption body to be able to get to the bottom of this and to help restore some of the trust in our democracy because the australians trust in our democracy is shrinking, Um, it's getting worse, you know, fewer and fewer of us say that we believe in our democracy. And that's got to be a worry, I think, particularly when we look at what's going on around the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, there are some... Parliamentarians who are trying to con- maintain a level of accountability and to also put some pressure on the government over the bushfires and the climate change emergency we find ourselves in. And I know many people, if they weren't yet convinced over the summer, would have kind of been swayed by the things that Australia has gone through in such a short period of time. And we've seen Zali Stegall, the woman who ousted Tony Abbott in Warringah at the last election, Um, She's joined forces with crossbenchers Rebecca Sharkey, Helen Haynes and Andrew Wilkie to release a climate change national framework for an adaptation and mitigation bill, uh, which is interesting and a very different development considering that Labor is not involved in that. Um, It's that it's the crossbenchers banding together to um, put pressure on both sides.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's an indictment on both the major parties and it shows where the leadership is coming from in the Australian parliament in 2020 it's coming from the independent members the only people who apparently seem to be free of the influence of the fossil fuel industries so yeah zali Stegel defeated tony abbott uh, obviously we all we all know who tony abbott is mm. um, and
0: her platform was really around climate change yeah
1: her platform was as a moderate small l liberal independent who believed in climate change mm. um and she knocked off tony abbott last year and she's since um, put together, you know, essentially it's it's pretty similar to to what uh, I would call um, Labor's first emissions policy from say 2009. It doesn't have an emissions trading aspect to my to my understanding. I haven't actually looked at it closely, but I, I don't think she's put in a, a kind of emissions trading scheme into it. But there is a uh, a zero carbon target by 2050. And there's um, support from a range of the other crossbenchers, as you said, mm. and it's about kind of getting a, a legal framework um, into law to try and get Australia to, um, you know, a zero carbon economy in a time frame that might just. You know, have some chance of, of stopping the, the unstoppable global warming that's destroying our environment. So it's exactly what you th- would hope that federal parliamentarians should be doing, actually thinking about the future of the nation. Um, and I think it's, it's really telling that it had to come from the independents. It had to come from people who weren't part of the existing power structure. And I think it's also telling that Labor won't get behind it. Um, Because I think if Labor was prepared to get behind it, you know, they could really put some pressure on the coalition about this. Mm. Um, So the refusal by Labor to actually back this, I think, and of course, it hasn't come to a vote yet, and we might still see them back it, but it's not like they're sort of standing next to Sally Stegall (laughs) and saying, you know, yeah, we believe in in reducing emissions. And I think that's really telling.
0: It is telling. Um, They're hoping that there will be a conscience vote over this bill, because that's in their mind the only way it might pass the lower house Um, and it was interesting that some of their targeted allies would include Dave Sharma who wrote an opinion article in his local paper saying that the uh, government needs to go far beyond their current policy which was I guess him sticking his neck out in a small way.
1: Yeah so there's a group of moderate liberals uh, so-called modern liberals as Tim Wilson is calling them including Tim Wilson, Dave Sharma, uh, Jason Fillinter. Trent who? Zimmerman, um, yep. you know, so a couple of. So these are largely inner city uh, uh, Liberal Party MPs, um, all of whom, uh, you know, had pretty significant swings against them in the last election. Uh, Sharma, of course, you know, uh, didn't even win his seat the first time around when he went up for it um, against. Uh, 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 who who did he lose it to?
0: Oh, um, Karen Phelps. Karen Phelps. Yeah. Karen
1: Phelps was the, the, the member for um, Wentworth there for about eight months or ten months or so. So Sharm only narrowly beat um, Phelps in the 2019 election. So he's vulnerable on climate change and so are a bunch of the Melbourne inner city, in city Liberals. Mm. And so they're, they're trying to put some pressure on the party. Of course, Scott Morrison's the Prime Minister the right of the party is firmly in charge in factional terms, and I don't expect this will go too far. Um, but I think it shows that, that things are moving and that, that there's a, there's some pent-up pressure starting to sort of exert itself in the parliament about climate.
0: Well, let's hope that things do change. Um, it's interesting that uh, the man we were talking about earlier, Richard Marles, said that Uh, when asked about this particular bill, that the opposition was looking to work with the government on a bipartisan climate policy, which probably says it all, doesn't it, Ben?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's a fool's errand that Labor's been pursuing now for 10 years. I mean, you might remember that Kevin Rudd tried to negotiate a bipartisan climate change arrangement with the Liberals back in 2009. This was what led to Tony Abbott actually becoming the opposition leader all the way back then. Uh, So um, Labor continues to to think that the only way that they can kind of solve the, the climate change puzzle is to get the Liberals on board. The problem with that is that They can't get the Liberals on board. I mean, there's a whole bunch of Liberals who will never vote for any kind of climate action whatsoever. They don't believe that climate change is real um, and they're ideologically opposed to any kind of curbs on pollution whatsoever. So I just don't see that that's ever going to happen, basically.
0: Yeah, and it reminds me that uh, we've seen a couple of prominent former Liberals, including Julie Bishop and Malcolm Turnbull, continue to make statements in the press, both here and overseas, saying that Australia now needs to take the lead and put pressure on other countries and also start to do more ourselves, which I found particularly uh, ironic given their history together as um, obviously Turnbull being the former Prime Minister before we uh, saw that leadership spill um, that saw Scott Morrison put into that position. What are your thoughts on this whole, I've, I've gone into retirement, now my you know strident views on climate change have altered slightly?
1: Yeah, what was it that St Augustine said? Uh, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Well, so <laughs> now that Turnbull's left uh, the government, he can be pure again. And then he's got his leather jacket back out from the cupboard and he's sort of uh, posturing on all of those kind of left liberal, small L liberal kind of positions that once made him so popular. I mean, people will probably ask themselves, what happened to the Malcolm Turnbull of 2015 that was so popular, you know, riding high in the polls? And, and the answer is essentially, apart from his own political mistakes, of which there were many, um, which is that the, the Liberal Party did not allow Turnbull to lead on, on climate change. And the, the reason, in fact, that Scott Morrison was able to roll Turnbull back in 2018 and become the Prime Minister was that, uh, the Liberal Party refused to legislate uh, the National Energy Guarantee, which was Turnbull and Freidenberg's policy that would have had some carbon emissions reduction in it would have had some action on climate change and just even having a very moderate policy that would have had some climate action was too much for the Liberal Party. So Mm. to some degree you could claim that Turnbull's a hypocrite but I think it's also the case that he just never had the numbers to be able to push through climate action within the Liberal Party and I think you know subsequent history has shown that.
0: Indeed he tried to consult and um, have a, a cabinet government, so to speak. But when you have such strong dissidents like, um, oh, Heaps of backbenchers. I'm thinking about Christensen, well, in, Christensen particular. in particular. Threatens, yeah, uh,
1: across the floor multiple times over anything to do with
0: climate. Mm, he yeah. did absolutely. Um, now let's just uh, close out our discussion with uh, one of the ongoing issues that um, is still—it's probably going to continue for another month or two. Who knows when it will end? Is the coronavirus and uh, the Australian government's response? They have—they um, did the first round of. Uh, you know, bringing the plane, chartering the plane, taking it to Christmas Island. Yes. Now we're moving into a abandoned or empty mining town near Darwin to put our uh, second flight worth of Australians coming back from Wuhan. What are your thoughts on the government's approach to this uh, particular crisis that we're seeing?
1: Well, I think it's very interesting, isn't it? So the first thing to point out is the World Health Organization still does not recommend travel bans. So despite everything that has happened over the last sort of four weeks and despite the fact that we've got a cruise liner sailing around the Pacific not being allowed to dock anywhere because it's got people on board with coronavirus and, yes, we have seen coronavirus spread to a number of Western nations and all over Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, etc., cetera, um, the World Health Organization still says that the best practice is still just to monitor people who are arriving in the country and to do quarantine where necessary. So the government's reaction is arguably from a health policy perspective uh, over the top. Um, uh, but anyway, that's what they've done. So they've sent a whole bunch of people to Christmas Island and then they've opened, yes, this uh, decommissioned mining camp <laughs> in Darwin for all the workers who used to be building the Inpex, uh I think it was a gas pipeline or a, a gas project up there in Darwin. And they're going to quarantine a whole bunch more people there. So, um, you know, one thing that Australia doesn't have a shortage of is, uh, you know, decommissioned concentration camps and things like this. So there'll be plenty of space for them to do quarantine if they need to. Um, But, of course, while this is happening, there's been a big hit to the economy, and I think there's been a big hit to the international economy, and we're starting to see a big hit to the domestic economy too. So we know tourism numbers are down. We know that universities are struggling to come to terms with a whole bunch of their students not being allowed to enter the country. Um, And we know that in China, there's a whole bunch of factories that are closed. And so international trade is down, you know, and how long this crisis lasts really depends, uh, will really determine how big an impact it has on the the global economy. It could be quite significant.
0: Yeah, and we've seen Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, uh, come out and say that the surplus will be impacted by the coronavirus. It's all the coronavirus's fault, of course. Um, But surely it's not really all that simple. A lot of people have pointed out the economy has been on the nose far before this became an issue.
1: Well, that's right. The economy had an underlying weakness for some time really, and that was driven by low wages and by a stagnant domestic consumer economy. And then if you add in the bushfires over the summer, and then if you add in coronavirus, uh, some economists think that you know, we might have a, a negative quarter of GDP growth. Um, some economists think that, yeah, we could have a technical recession. I think it's too early to say that. But there's no doubt that things are not great. Uh, you know, a lot of people are staying home. You know, I've, I've heard reports that Chadston is empty, you know, <laughs> which is <laughs> remarkable for that that shopping megalopolis. Um, so it is having an impact on the domestic economy. How big it is, we don't know, but we know that the Reserve Bank has openly called for the federal government to do more stimulus spending Uh, a call that, of course, the federal government has once again rejected.
0: Mm. And the other element to this is, of course, a rise in racism. And we've seen a lot of people, whether they realise it or not, um, engaging in some forms of racism. And we've also seen people avoiding areas like Box Hill and uh, Glen Waverley, where there are a significant number of um, people of Chinese background. And that is particularly concerning, I think, for those businesses who a lot of them have actually had to close temporarily because they've been making losses.
1: Yeah, that's particularly worrying. And I and I think, you know, this is why this is where we're really not seeing any leadership from the federal government. Mm. This is where we need Scott Morrison and the federal government to strongly tell people, don't be racist. Yes. Um you know and, and it's it's not it's not rocket science. It's actually a pretty simple message, but it's one which this government is very loath to voice. Um, and I think that's there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Um, And, you know, we probably don't need to go into them too much, but it's pretty obvious why this government would be reluctant to run with an anti-racism message.
0: Indeed. Ben, it's been great to speak with you. There's so much happening and I hope you have an excellent week.
1: Thanks, Amy. Always a pleasure, mate.
0: I've been speaking with Ben Altham and we have been talking all about federal politics and uh, Ben writes for New Matilda if you want to check out his writing on a range of federal politics subjects. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You are tuned in to 3 rr FM. This show is Uncommon Sense. And uh, I have with me on the phone a very special guest. His name is Kevin Tolhurst. Kevin is an associate professor in fire ecology and management, and uh, he's been working on a lot of research over the decades and been um, involved in. Uh, bushfire management and giving advice as to bushfire behaviour and bushfire science Uh, to governments. He's um, given evidence at a number of bushfire inquiries and royal commissions and um, he's also developed uh, software around bushfire behaviour as well. So I'm really glad that I get to speak now with Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst who joins me on the phone and we will be talking all about uh, bushfires and also the proposed Bushfire Royal Commission that the federal government has uh, requested and put out uh, a communique to the states in regards to and, uh, of course, This is all particularly topical given the bushfires that we've been experiencing, not just in Victoria, but of course also in New South Wales and South Australia. There were also some uh, elsewhere in Australia, in Tasmania and Western Australia. So we've seen a lot of bushfire activity over the summer and, of course, the summer isn't yet over. So I welcome now on the phone Kevin Tolhurst. Hi there and thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Good morning, Amy, and good morning, listeners.
0: Thank you, and uh, it's great to, to chat with you. I'm really um, interested to cover the, a broad range of sub- Topics within this um, idea of bushfire behaviour and bushfire management. Um, But I thought we might start out with your background and your particular interest and your involvement in a number of um, activities relating to advising government and giving evidence to governments. And uh, I think some people may and may not be aware that you um, were playing a role in advising uh, people during the Black Saturday bushfires and you also gave evidence uh, to the Bushfire Royal Commission which came out of the Black Saturday um, bushfires which of course killed uh, a number of people and um, um, destroyed many homes and also destroyed the environment in many ways. So in terms of your previous background in that uh, practical sense of utilising your own research and um, having it taken up through advice um, and practical action, what has been your, um, I guess, driving passion to be involved in this area and what's your experience been in putting some of your um, insights into practice
2: <laughs> yeah big question look I, I guess the um, my main driving driving force has always been to try and maintain the um, our natural environment in a sustainable sort of a way so um and a lot of that is to do with how we uh, look after the, the soils, how we look after the um, the plants and the animals in that system. And fire is such a fundamental part of the process in how those systems operate that um, when I got a chance to uh, do some fire ecology research in uh, starting in 1984, I uh, couldn't... Um, stop moving into that area because it was an area that I thought was really important. So I guess the driver for me has always been to um, maintain our natural ecosystems in a a sustainable way. So uh, not necessarily just locking them up, but uh, um, maintaining the processes in there given that uh, we've got Humans in the landscape, we have needs and uses of the of the environment, so it's uh, always been important to me to to get the the balance right between um, our human wants and needs and and uh, the environmental wants and needs.
0: Indeed, and I know that um, a lot of your research, can be utilised in these kind of crisis situations as, of course, uh, many people who study this area. And um, and that kind of practical uh, approach and use of your research presumably can be quite fulfilling but maybe also frustrating when uh, not all of it is taken up or utilised. Um, in your mind, looking at the bushfires that we've experienced over January, um, I think a lot of people have probably been shocked uh, by the extent of some of these fires that kind of grew into megafires and took some people by surprise. Uh, when you're looking at a bushfire and what drives um, the, the, not only the kind of ignition of one but how it grows and moves, what are some of the reasons why bushfires might occur in the landscape and um, what makes them, what can turn them into a megafire like some of the fires we've seen over summer?
2: Yeah. Again, it's a very big question. So I guess there are um, one of the fundamental things we need to understand is that fires are uh, a are great integrators of energy, and there are basically five sources of energy that. Uh, get incorporated into fire. So the one that most people are, are quite familiar with is the fuel, So the, and the fuel is largely the dead organic material. So organic material is basically stored chemical energy, and in the combustion process that energy is released, and we see that in terms of flame and heat and smoke coming out of a, a fire. So the fuel is an obvious one. Then there's a second form of energy that goes into fire, is captured by fire, is the weather. And again, that's not too surprising. So the stronger the wind, the more intense the fire, but the wind also helps direct the movement, the direction of movement of the fire. Um, the dryness of the air also uh, comes into play there as well in terms of removing some of the moisture from uh, the fuel which the fire itself would have to have done otherwise. So the weather the fuel are the two most obvious sources of energy but the terrain also has a a role to play um, because hot air rises, uh, a steep slope means that the hot air rising is actually moving through the fuel more so the preheating is much more efficient so the rate spread is a lot quicker so where you have significant terrain so a mountainous country uh you more energy is available to the fire as well and that adds to the spotting process as well as just the, the flame front movement then the other two ones are less perhaps obvious um one is the environmental moisture content which is related to drought so the pre uh condition for the fires this year have been uh, a period of at least four years of, of drought in new south wales and southeast queensland and uh, eastern victoria um, and so what happens there is the moisture is uh, driven out of the uh, the live vegetation as well as the dead uh, biomass the fuels and so it's easier for a fire to, to spread because it doesn't have to dry the fuel out. So drought is a, an important preconditioning, so it's a fourth source of energy. And the fifth source of energy is the instability of the atmosphere. So if a fire gets big enough, the the smoke column from that fire basically uh, moves into the atmosphere and it's very much a three-dimensional process. And the rate at which that smoke's uh, rising um, will increase if the atmosphere is unstable, like conditions that lead to uh, thunderstorm-type conditions, or when a front moves through. And what happens then is the winds at ground level actually increase to replace the air that's rising in the atmosphere. So we can get uh, cyclone strength winds at ground level that have been induced by the fire. So we've seen the fires over this last um, few months Um, when they get large and under unstable atmospheric conditions where we have these low pressure troughs moving around um, the country uh, in a drought period, the fire is able to integrate or capture all of those sources of energy and we end up with this massive fire. So that's the the physical uh, behaviour. If the fires never got large, then they wouldn't be uh, able to integrate as much of that energy. So that's a major issue. And the question is, why did they get so large? And part of the reason for that is how we've managed landscape and how we've responded in terms of uh, trying to suppress the fires. So uh, it's quite a complex integrated system that we're trying to deal with But fires don't just happen, there's a lot of build-up to them
0: Yes, exactly It sounds like it's almost a perfect storm of conditions That can lead to these mega-fires that we see And um, that kind of cyclone, cyclone behaviour that we um, saw And you've just mentioned Where we, we um, saw some tragic circumstances Where uh, there was flipping of fire trucks And some of the volunteer firefighters losing their lives when they got caught up in some of these really extreme um, windy and bushfire conditions. How often do do those kind of events where there's this kind of cyclonic activity and and a bushfire creating its own weather pattern in Australia's history, how often do we know that this kind of um, behaviour occurring?
2: It certainly has happened before. I guess this year has been really unusual in the extent of the fires. So going basically all the way from southern Queensland uh, around to South Australia and even Western Australia have had um, some significant fires, although uh, probably more, they've been more normal for summer conditions. But to have fires all the way from Queensland around to South Australia... Uh, around the eastern southeastern part of Australia all occurring more or less at the same time is really really unusual so having large fires where we get these um, massive amount of energy uh, being captured and, and um, impacting on the site certainly has happened uh, several times before but I guess the, the, the widespread nature of them is is really unusual.
0: Indeed. And you also mentioned um, that there's a role in the kind of spread of bushfires in terms of spotting and how that can make things substantially worse. What were some of the instances we saw over summer where spotting uh, became an issue with these fires?
2: Yeah, look, a spotting uh, eucalypt forest, so in Australia is... Uh, unique in the sense that the amount of embers that are produced from fires in uh, eucalypt forest is not paralleled with with any other uh, vegetation type in the world. So uh, we have a really unusual amount of spotting, but what the spotting does is it creates lots of small um, fires ahead of the main fire front, and it becomes... um, you know, um, basically a firestorm type situation where normally what happens if you've just got a single fire, the air that's being drawn into the fire is relatively cool. It still might be 40 degrees, but it's relatively cool compared with the the heat of the fire. But If you've got hundreds or thousands of spot fires uh, burning in the, the ground ahead of the fire, that's all generating heat and so the air that's being entrained into the main convection column is not just the the ambient air of say 40 degrees temperature but it'll be heated air from the, the fire area and so that feeds back rapidly on the um, the main convection column and accelerates the fire and, and we get effectively firestorm conditions. So that's occurred on a number of occasions where we've had big runs of uh, fire and so um, the fire spread at about two to three times as fast when the spotting process is uh, fully engaged compared with under milder conditions where the the fire is just spreading under more um, local spread conditions of radiation and convection from the flaming front. So spotting is really important in terms of both the severity of the fire, but it also affects... One of the first things I was surprised at when I first started studying fire was why do so many kangaroos get... Uh, killed in uh, bushfires and I thought because they can run faster than a fire can spread but when you consider this spotting process what happens is even the kangaroos will get trapped by being um, surrounded by fires in a short period of time and we we saw that a lot on Black Saturday in places like uh, Narbathon and and, um, Strathuan and Marysville where Large areas, so in a radius of about eight kilometres, were basically more or less uh, ignited within a few minutes and then the fires coalesced and created this firestorm uh, situation. And it's the same thing that traps the wildlife, the kangaroos. They they can't uh, move quick enough to get outside the area because they're actually surrounded by fire. So the spotting process is really... um, Important, and the spotting is largely being driven by the bark on the um, the eucalypt trees. So, um, whether it's the stringy bark or the uh, loose gum bark.
0: It sounds like it makes things uh, particularly unpredictable. And I've heard you speak in the past about um, the use of bushfire analysis um, and, and analysts in these kind of fast-moving situations where they're often engaged to look at mapping areas and predicting where bushfires might occur and also if one is currently uh, burning, where it might spread to. Uh, but there's also other ways that analysts can be utilised um, to hopefully uh, be more strategic and to make sure that all the kind of proactive things that can be done are being done. What are some of those um, those areas of knowledge that are maybe underutilised at the moment in terms of our practice with bushfires? Yeah.
2: Um, that's a very politically astute question, but uh, <laughs> the problem is that um, the the behaviour of fires is pretty well known and we can predict it fairly well. So a lot of people say that it's uh, unpredictable. Nor, it's not true. I mean, fires still obey the, the rules of chemistry and physics. And, and so it's just a matter of understanding the processes and what processes are operating at a time and fire behaviour analysts are trained to, to be able to understand that. And I, uh, a colleague and I produced a, um, a simulator, fire simulator called Phoenix Rapid Fire. Um, which incorporates uh, a lot of those processes in a, in a computer um, model. So fire behaviour analysts have access to that as well, so they can use that. So they can actually come up with pretty good uh, predictions of where the fire's likely to be and what it's likely to be like. And that provides a good basis for making choices between different suppression strategies. But what we've seen... Um, I guess, in the last few years, and this year has been uh, a fantastic example of it, and and this is why I say it's a political astute question that you asked, is that there's so much more emphasis just on uh, reactionary response. So... um, It's just a matter of sending resources out and and, uh, uh, doing as much as you can, being busy uh, without necessarily being all that strategic in the thinking and the allocation of the resources. So we see these big um, uh, aircraft that uh, drop uh, fire retardant and and the helicopters and so on, uh, and they all look fantastic, but strategically... um, they're not necessarily playing uh, that greater role, but they look great on the 6 o'clock news. So politically and publicly, there's a lot of support for the aircraft, whereas, in fact, the best work uh, in stopping a fire is usually done at ground level. And so... um, But as you understand, the amount of energy that's been released from a fire is always going to be far in excess of what we can deal with uh, head-on. So we have to be smarter about how we go about... Uh, trying to control fires and suppress fires. And that takes a lot of strategic planning and and, uh, thinking. So it's not just reacting to what's in front of you, what you can see. It actually requires careful thought and consideration. And that's where the fire behaviour analysts are really important because they're sitting back... um, Uh, away from the the fire front, if you like, but able to see what's going on and do an analysis of uh, what's happening now and what's likely to be happening in the future and provide good guidance as to the best way to use the the resources we have available, so whether it's aircraft or ground crews or whatever, to um, basically deal with the fire and it might not be necessarily um, going in at the height of the fire but waiting for an opportunity when the fire's uh, weather conditions have died down or the fire's moved into an area that is more accessible uh, and what can be done. But part of the analyst's program um, job also is to say, how long have you got to achieve a certain amount of work? So it might be that you have four hours to achieve a particular uh, result or it might be uh, four days to achieve that particular result. And then it's um, the problem is, can we find enough resources to be able to achieve the, the task in the time that's available? So that strategic thinking is quite critical. And the trouble is, because we've moved down a more political, um, populist approach, we're just uh, using reaction and, and uh, immediate response thinking rather than longer-term strategic thinking. So our use of our resources haven't been as effective as they uh, could possibly have been, uh, given all the circumstances that we're dealing with.
0: Mm. And perhaps it has been um, more political this year, given that there has been this kind of um, look to political leaders for guidance and reassurance, and um, there hasn't really been all that much reassurance over this summer. Um, and we have seen the aircraft that you mentioned there be one of those major kind of sticking points for people um, as that, well, why can't we just bring in the aircraft and, and they'll solve the problem? What would be the role then? And how are water bombers and other um, kind of airplanes using fire retardant? What role do they best play in a situation like we've seen over the summer holidays? Where can they provide... Um, The most useful support to ground crews?
2: Yeah, so um, aircraft, uh, two of the most useful roles for aircraft. One is Uh, just as an observation deck to be able to see what's happening at ground level and then communicating that to the people on the ground because when you're on the ground the extent of your vision can be quite limited by the the terrain or the the fire itself or whatever so they're a really useful platform for guiding people on the ground so uh, that's that's without dropping any water or, or retardant the second thing that they're really useful for the aircraft is dealing with fires when they're relatively small or the early stages of development. And certainly in Victoria this year, there's been a much better use of aircraft early in the development of fires. So aircraft have been immediately deployed when a fire has been um, identified. And that's a much better use of aircraft than um, waiting for an hour to see what happens and then sending the aircraft out. Because by that time, often the fires are... Too large for the aircraft to be effective. The, the large air tankers that we see, the trouble with them is really they, well, they, they can put out a lot of uh, material in um, a drop, uh, they can't do many drops per hour. They, they, the turnaround time is uh, quite long and the fire moves faster than they can put out um, track. So there are opportunities to use them in some places to um, help perhaps backburning operations or to slow down a fire to um, allow ground crews time to to achieve uh, a particular outcome on the ground. So they they do certainly have a use, but they they don't put fires out. Uh, They're only um, useful uh, supplementary resources to assist uh, what's happening on the ground. Uh, It's it's akin in a way to um, fighting wars that it's the ground crews in the end that sort of um, uh, decide the final outcome even though that the aircraft can be uh, strategically quite important and useful so but they're not the, the end in themselves. So we've got to be careful that we don't spend so much of our time and resources on big aircraft when we might be better off uh, employing another 100 people. And I think that's another part of this question is People who are working on the ground um, as firefighters, in a way, need to be very familiar with the country they're working in, and so I think there's a a need to have a lot more um, people permanently working in the bush where these fires occur, so that they understand the the bush itself, the the track network, the the nature of the, the plants and the animals across the landscape, so that they in an emergency situation can make much better decisions so it's not just a matter of trying to quell the flames they actually are more thoughtful and um, understanding of how the system is working and so that they can work more safely and more effectively so there's a major longer term land management issue here that needs to be addressed as well
0: Indeed. And if we're talking about this longer term picture and the allocation of resources uh, to firefighting, a lot of people have raised that kind of concern that can we rely upon uh, volunteer firefighters to do the majority of the heavy lifting over summer? And people um, have been concerned that maybe this is just the beginning and that we may see more intense bushfires uh, in future summers. And, of course, um, there's still a bit more of the Victorian bushfire season to go. In your mind, um, given that we've experienced um, some particularly a difficult uh, situation or circumstances this summer, what kind of um, forward planning would need to be considered uh, for future ideas like what kind of level of ground crews might Australia need moving into the future to manage these bushfires?
2: Yeah, again, there's a a lot in your question there. Look, I think um, we shouldn't be expecting volunteers to be... um, the bulk of our firefighting force. The volunteers are an incredibly valuable uh, resource and, and community um, asset, in a sense, but their focus should always be the protection of the, the community and a relatively short-term uh, response, in my view. So I think we should have enough paid um, fire management people in the um, across our state to be able to... across our country to be able to... Um, deal with these fires uh, on the longer term but if we took a program that might take 20 years to fully implement and had more uh, paid people doing work in in, uh, forested areas who uh, were basically doing uh, prescribed burning and and perhaps track maintenance work and and other work, but based in rural areas, not based in regional centres or or large towns, but sort of based closer to the area that they're actually working. Um, And so that they're familiar with the the local community as well as the, the local environment. And those people would be doing a lot of preparatory work well before a bushfire starts. And in that sort of environment, you would never get to the stage where you would have such extensive fires as we've seen in in the last few years. So the skills and the knowledge of uh, people using uh, prescribed fire and managing uh, the landscape is different to the skills that you, you require for just firefighters. Firefighters are, um, have a much narrower and more specific sort of role to p- play, but we um, shouldn't see that the problem is a firefighting problem. The problem is a land management problem, and so people working in the in the environment need to actually understand that um, environment that they're working in. So when a wildfire does come along, they can more effectively... Um, and safely work in that environment and uh, reduce the the chances of having such extensive fires in the first
0: place. Mm. I'm speaking with Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst who is an expert in fire ecology and management. Um, And Kevin, I'm interested in some of the confusion perhaps that has arisen over summer and that you've just touched on around preparatory elements like hazard reduction burns. Uh, A lot of people were confused Used uh, during the summer and were often using interchangeably the concepts of backburning and hazard reduction burns, which are very two very different things. Could you share with us, I guess, what the essential differences are and why they are um, important?
2: Yeah, OK. So a generic term, I guess, for the deliberate application of fire to achieve uh, specific outcomes is prescribed burning. So prescribed burning specifically relates to uh, fire that's used to uh, achieve a particular outcome, and it can be high intensity or low intensity or whatever. Backburning is specifically a uh, strategic use of fire during a wildfire to um, light a new fire uh, ahead of the main fire to basically burn out the fuels in front of the fire. But that new fire that you light has to be controllable. So, again, it's a big decision to make to actually do a backburn. And so um, when people are talking about backburning, uh, meaning prescribed burning for whether it's hazard reduction or whether it's an uh, environmental um, outcomes, um, it, it's a misuse of the term. So backburning basically means you're trying to get a fire to burn back into the wind um back towards the main fire front ahead of the fire and it's a it's a very um tricky situation to get right and and often we've seen this season as with the other seasons that many of these back burns actually uh, escape and can actually extend the extent of the fire um if they're not um done well so um yeah, we should be talking about prescribed burning when we're talking about uh, specifically trying to achieve land management outcomes, so whether that's the regeneration of um, uh, plant or, or animal species or whether it's the, the cycling of uh, nutrients in the, uh, the landscape. And it's that knowledge and skill that's associated with doing prescribed burning um, that is useful during wildfires. But that use of fire to maintain the, the natural processes in the ecosystem will also, as a byproduct, reduce the hazard level because simply by having had fires in that landscape, that certain amount of energy has already been released from that system under milder conditions and a more gradual process. So the damage... Um, done by fires is minimal in fact there's probably more good done than damage under those mild conditions what we see under high intensity fires particularly extensive high intensity fires some of the damaging uh, damage that's done by those fires can be irreversible you know it sort of really makes me um, really sad and depressed when I see areas that have been burnt so hot that the soil's Uh, erode away for years afterwards and you think, well, it's never going to recover. It's taken tens of thousands of years for that soil to build up in the first place and now after this one event, uh, the soil is now continuously eroding into our streams so it's blocking um, a lot of our aquatic um, systems as well so it's interfering with the aquatic system as well as uh, back on the site where the soil's been lost where the seed and the nutrient, it's all all been lost and it'll never recover back to what it was before. So the severity of these fires is partly a result of us not having enough described fire, low-intensity fire, in the landscape. So because we've got so many people living in Australia these days and we've got various values and assets and there's been a lot of fragmentation and we've got pest plants and animals, management of fire is, is quite difficult and complex. And so we need to uh, have a lot of skill and knowledge to be able to apply it. Now, there's been talk of um, learning from a lot of the traditional uses of fire from the the, the, uh, um, traditional owners. And I think there's a lot that can be learned about what indicators they used, what methods they used. We can't apply directly what might have been done before European settlement, but we can learn a lot from how they did it and why they did it and uh, learn from that and and develop new systems for the, the future based on that traditional knowledge. There's a, a, there is an argument as well that some of the traditional owners should be allowed to uh, apply fire themselves in some locations just for cultural uh, purposes. But um, I think uh, we need to learn to live with the land more than trying to fight it and and, uh, overwhelm it and control it. We we need to be working with the environment rather than trying to um, master it.
0: Yes, and presumably uh, that... Conditions have, I guess, evolved and changed over time. Some people have highlighted the fact that climate change has um, accelerated, in some cases drought, and drought um, has, of course, led to more severe bushfires. That's the kind of discussion we've been having over summer. And mm. so, um, given that those conditions have changed and, you know, been caused in large part by human activity and industrialization, um, it... As you say, is probably more about understanding um, the methods of traditional owners and then trying to see how they might apply to new circumstances in a, a climate change era that we're now facing.
2: Yeah, and I think one of uh, my concerns is I guess climate change is being used as almost a cop out. So saying, oh, well, you know, this is all part of climate change. And so all that climate change is actually doing is really exposing the weaknesses of our land management over the past few decades. And um, so we need to address climate change, but we also, and just as importantly, or even more importantly, address how we're managing the natural environment. So a lot of us uh, with a a sort of a more city-centric sort of view of the world think that more is better. So we think the more biomass on a site, then that's going to be better. Well, it's not necessarily. I mean, it's like saying that uh, someone who uh, weighs 120 kilograms is going to be healthier than someone who weighs 70 kilograms. More is not necessarily better. You've got to be fit and you've got to be vital and be responsible. So we need to keep the environment in a a, a, a vital and vibrant uh, state. And it's not just about having it all in as old as possible, as long undisturbed or uh, the greatest amount of biomass, that's not the most viable and sustainable way to maintain the systems. And we've seen uh, several examples of areas where there's been reserves set aside and, and fire has been kept out of those reserves for as long as possible. And eventually what happens is it all gets burnt in one fire really intensely and has uh, really drastic impacts rather than necessarily being a, a gradual um, involvement of fire over a long period of time where the the, the impact is nowhere near as dramatic and in fact can be quite in, uh, even enhancing and sustaining. So we, we need to um, move away from some of our... Um, human-centric sort of view of the environment and, and think about the environment from the environment's perspective. And again, that's where I, I see some of the understandings from the traditional owners being really useful um, because they see themselves as part of the environment, not the, the owners or the managers of it. And so uh, their perspective is much more from a, um, keeping the environment, I guess, in a, a, a healthy and productive state.
0: Mm. Sounds like there's a lot more nuance to this situation, um than is Acknowledged. And uh, it's also interesting in terms of um, some of the kind of ways that you've described fire as being a natural process, and that we need to, as you've already alluded to, um, stop kind of seeing it um, in this kind of fight reaction uh, approach, but to see it more as an integrated part of the environment and how we um, manage that and make sure that it's controlled.
2: Yeah, exactly right. I mean, we can look at the rain in the same sort of way. I mean, rain is um, vital for life, and we we uh, rely on rain a lot. But if we get too much rain, we call it floods, and that you can know. have a damaging process. So fire is no different to, to rain in that sense. The, the main difference about fire is that we can have a bigger influence on it by uh, either suppressing fires or, or starting fires, igniting fires, um, so there's more onus on us as humans to uh, manage fire across the landscape. We can't manage rain to the same extent. We can sort of affect drainage and we can affect how we design things. But um, the fire is one element of the environment that we have a lot of influence over and therefore we have a lot of re- more responsibility to, to manage well.
0: Mm. And I think um, it's interesting that when we have these really severe events and uh, there's a huge impact to humans as well as the environment that we'll often try and uh, regroup and analyse what has gone wrong, which of course can be very productive. Uh, But there's also... I guess, more productive ways of analysing and assessing things um, retrospectively and then, you know, looking forward and learning from mistakes. And I'm thinking about the number of public inquiries, reviews and royal commissions that we've had in which you have written about in a piece, um, you know, sharing the fact that there have been... Uh, At least 57 formal public inquiries, reviews, and royal commissions relating to bushfires and fire management since 1939. I mean, that is quite a staggering number um, of reviews, and uh, you highlight that that is really more than one inquiry every two years over the past 80 years. I'm interested in your thoughts on um, the fact that we've had so many of these inquiries and you've given evidence at a number of them. What are some of the things that we um, have, that have come up time and time again in these inquiries that we prob- that we possibly haven 't really taken on board and implemented and learned from
2: yeah so, so I think the things that we 've probably taken up reasonably well is uh, how we 've um communicate and and let people know what's going on more so we're using technology for that but what we haven't really taken on very well is how we plan uh, our subdivisions and where we put houses, how we um, manage the the landscape generally. So one of the things that comes out of uh, a number of these inquiries is the requirement really to have um, well bodies or, or people with the responsibility to have a long term view of how we're managing these landscapes. We're dealing with ecosystems that um, have a span of, um, in terms of hundreds of years, rather than necessarily three year cycles of an election. So having uh, someone with responsibility to um, make the decisions, the strategic decisions that need to be made, that is at arm's length to uh, the, the political process uh is really important and there has been little appetite really to um to look at that seriously there's pl- always plenty of resources and and support for more emergency response because that's fantastic on the six o'clock news because you can get that on most evenings but there's very little um reward or or uh, push really for good land management because if if you're managing the land well. Uh, no-one particularly notices, <laughs> and, and so there's very little reward. And so politically, you can say, well, you know, what's the point of spending money on this? It's, it's going all right. We'll divert the money over here to another uh, higher-priority area. And uh, in the as a consequence of that sort of... Um, Involvement, you then end up with a, a gradual degradation of uh, land management over a period of decades. And you get to a point that we are now where the, the land management is really poorly done in Australia generally. And so we really need to readdress that. And that's been a, a common theme from a number of inquiries. But politically, it's so hard to implement because it needs to be at arm's length to the political process so having sort of um, statutory authorities, really, that have responsibility for, for land management would be a much better way of going rather than having direct political um, direction and involvement. So the politicians need to stand back a bit and say, look, we'll set the um, the broad um, policy settings and, and the broad um, strategies that will be there, but the, 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 the longer-term strategies and, and decision-making need to be made by an authority or a body that has more independence and lasts longer than just a political cycle.
0: It's mm, an excellent point, and it reminds me of the fact that a lot of people have um, highlighted over summer when we saw bushfires um, connect over the New South Wales Victoria border. That fires don't, you know, remain in one state, and it doesn't fit in a neat kind of category. And you often have to have this collaborative collaborative effort between fire services and governments. And you highlight in your article um, the fact that really response. For land and fire management is segmented by state and territory governments, um, and that you know this kind of coordination needs to perhaps be better managed uh, across governments. How would you foresee that happening? And do you think it um, is in current need of review?
2: Well, we we already have a um, a national policy that's been signed off by all the the, the ministers. From all the states and territories of australia so through coag the council of australian governments um, from 2012 and um what needs to happen with that so that's a a fire management um, plan for australia there needs to be um work done to determine what the, the measurable outcomes are for that we've done something similar for uh sustainable forest management at on a global level um and so Australia actually reports uh, to um, the according to the Montreal um, criteria and indicators on sustainable uh, forest management on an uh, annual basis. But we don't do the same thing with fire. We need to basically have a set of measures uh, uh, which include the, the the outcomes that we we have that. Um, are agreed to nationally that we're all working towards at the moment each state and territory really work towards their own um, goals and outcomes and and a lot of them are relatively uh, short uh, term and and, and small in in extent and as soon as you get to the state border they're they're different and it looks different and and it doesn't make a lot of sense as you say. So we need to um, I guess at a national level sit down and basically implement this uh, National Fire Management Plan that's already been written up that sets out the goals and it sets out the, um, I guess, the broad process as to how it's going to be achieved, what the principles are, but the detail needs to still be worked through so that we can come up with an agreed set of uh, measures that um, we're all going to work towards. So we still might have some of our own um, customised ways of achieving those goals, and that's fine. It's the outcomes that we're really... Interested in having a bit more consistency with, so um, I think we need to be a bit more serious about trying to implement this plan, which was put together over um, a few years after the, um, a lot of it was probably after the 2009 fires, in fact. But uh, there's been no uh, effort or resources put to it to to push it any further. That's what I'd really like to see sort of come out of, I guess, this year, saying, well, look, you know, we've already got our our roadmap. Let's um, put in a few details here and and make it work.
0: Mm. And I think you're highlighting there what can be a weakness in government is that you will put in a lot of resources into coming up with a very well-considered plan. And um, as you highlight, there are 14 national goals that have been identified and that are shared across the states. Um, But then if there isn't a, a way to get to achieve the goal, and if it's not set out really clearly with measurable um, outcomes, then how do you know that you're even moving towards achieving those goals? Um, it, it's really, it sounds so straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and it probably is but um, as you say you need to put in the resources to get people to figure out what are the steps needed to take to actually get to that final end point of those 14 national goals that have already been set um, and you know I- I'm interested in how that really um, feeds into your argument about a bushfire royal commission because that has been something that Scott Morrison has proposed to the states um, but presumably if we have this uh, coordinated national plan that's already been um, you know allocated a number of resources in at least putting together that plan Um, would it be would money of a from a bushfire royal commission be better spent uh, kind of figuring out how to achieve the plan that we've already set out
2: Yeah, I certainly think so. One of the um, unintended outcomes of all of these inquiries and and commissions and so on is that um, the agencies that are responsible for um, dealing with these issues become, uh, I guess, criticism-shy in a sense. So what happens is they they then spend a lot more time in documenting everything they do and and, uh, making sure the processes are... Uh, are followed and and it becomes even more bureaucratic. So a lot of the time and effort is put into the bureaucratic process rather than the environmental outcomes that we want. And in the end, the reason why we have these agencies in place is, I would hope, um, to uh, make the management of our land and our environment more sustainable and and, uh, better managed than it is just to um, increase the election, re-election uh, chances of the, the, the minister or the, the political party that's uh, in power at the time. I mean, we, we need to... if With these inquiries, uh, they basically feed on themselves so that the, um, the amount of effort and resources that goes into holding them in the first place and then the accountancy sort of process that ends up afterwards... Is a real distortion of the the priorities that we should be setting for uh, good management of fire in the land, um, rather than necessarily uh, having um, political imperatives.
0: Indeed, and just to uh, close out our discussion, there was one um, recommendation that came out of the Black Saturday Bushfire Royal Commission, among many, of course. Uh, One of those was around uh, land planning and where people are able to build and have houses, residential homes. Mm -hmm. And one of um, the suggestions had been a non-compulsory buyback scheme um, where people who currently own land and or properties in areas that are very much prone to bushfire uh, might be able to have their properties bought by the state government Um, but it seems like those kind of um, plans which i mean that's almost uh, reactionary in a way and perhaps our planning should have already foreseen that maybe that spot wasn't a great spot to put a house but where did we go in terms of this idea of planning and and compulsory non-compulsory buybacks um, at the state level in victoria
2: Yeah, I think if you actually look at the the discussion around that um, buyback scheme that was um, proposed by the the Royal Commission, what you'll see there is an acknowledgement that um, our planning processes haven't been uh, as good as they needed to have been in the past. So it was a recognition of sort of some past um, poor decisions being made and this was was a way of rectifying it. And I guess the um, other... acknowledgement in a way is by having people and, and houses in locations that are in uh, very difficult to defend and so on uses up a lot of resources that could be better used elsewhere so in the process of trying to defend one house or one property um, those same resources could have been more effective in saving 10 or 20 properties in a more um a better located area so it it, it is of um community, public interest, I guess, as to how this planning process works. So the non-compulsory buyback, um, uh, the way uh, that it could work and has worked before, is you could basically just identify some properties which really should never have been allowed to be developed uh, in the first place. And the acknowledgement of that comes by way of a guarantee that the, the government will buy the, the property back if you uh, want to, to sell it now and the, and the dwelling or buildings would be removed and it would become uh, part of the Crown land. Uh, but in addition to that, it, whilst it's non-compulsory, you could also have a caveat on the property that it can never be on sold to anyone else so that um, it might be 20 or 30 years before the, the owner... Um, wants to move on or move out, uh, at that time, the property would be bought back then. So it wouldn't be, uh, whilst it's been identified as being an unacceptable risk, um, you wouldn't necessarily force people off the the property, but you would uh, say if the property gets burnt down, you're not going to be able to rebuild, or if you move on, uh, you won't be able to on-sell it. You'll have to sell it to the government, and the government will pay you um, the... A fair market rate for the for the property, so I think it can work, and it has uh, worked before. There the was a scheme not dissimilar to that um, implemented up in the the Dandenong Ranges after the fires in the 1960s up there. But it's rather than keep uh, making the same mistake over and over again, this is a way of trying to say, well, look, we we acknowledge that some uh, poor decisions have been made, so. Um, let's try and correct that because uh, effectively it's using up more resources, public resources, than uh, is reasonable and it's putting people at an unreasonable level of risk. So let's acknowledge that and and, uh, do something about it.
0: Mm. Uh, Kevin, it's been so wonderful to speak with you. Unfortunately, we ran out of time and I really appreciate the time you've spent with us, um, really, I think, informing us much better about uh, bushfire behaviour and also how we can proactively manage the land and uh, and also make sure that it's based in evidence and, um, and has nuance and isn't reactionary, which of course can be the danger when we get caught up in um, really extreme bushfire situations like we've seen over summer. So uh, thank you so much for all the work you do and for spending time with us today.
2: Well, thanks for giving me the time to uh, exp- explain some of the detail.
0: It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. I've been speaking with the wonderful Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst, who is a fire... Uh, ecologist and um, also a bushfire scientist. He looks into bushfire ecology and management and is uh, based at the University of Melbourne and has been working in this field for decades, as I'm sure was very evident in our discussion just there. And uh, if you want to look at uh, Kevin's work, it's of course online and uh, he wrote an article recently for The Conversation uh, which is called, We Have Already Had Countless Bushfire Inquiries what good will it do to have another? And uh, that's just one of the many contributions he's been making over the last few months, but also number of years, um, is giving advice to governments and other bodies about how we do manage these things better.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: I'm going to welcome now uh, Elisabetta Ferrari, who is a lecturer in Italian Studies at the University of Melbourne, and she's also going to be giving a talk tonight. Uh, and it's all going to be about introducing everyone to the great Vittorio De Sica, who is um, was a director and an actor. He's um, of the 20th century and we're thinking about uh, a period which is really around World War II, post-World War II essentially, but a lot of his films have themes um, that were happening in Italy at the time, politically and socially, around war and uh, and obviously poverty and and class um, and and family dynamics. So I'm very excited to be speaking uh, with Elisabetta and I welcome you now. Hi there.
3: Good morning. 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 Thank
0: you, thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure to have you and um, I'm really excited to talk about uh, this great actor and director. Um, I I didn't really know his acting particularly well. Um, I was only familiar uh, up until recently with his directing and particularly with his most prominent and well-known film, uh, Bicycle Thieves, which I'll let you pronounce the Italian because I think (laughs) I don't want to ruin it again. So, Ladri di Biciclette, that's the Italian title, yes. Perfect. And and so, this is like one of, uh, I I guess I said it's pretty iconic, um, and it certainly does... Portray a time in Italian history and even European history that is, um, you know, really fascinating but also quite uh, despairing. Um, the situation post World War II, uh, and for people who aren't familiar with Vittorio De Sica's work um, and his early work, I guess a lot of people have used a label um, a- of neo-realism. What do you understand to be in in Italian cinema neo-realism, and what was Vittorio De Sica's involvement in this movement.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, Vittorio De Sica is one of the directors that is considered really the founder of Neorealism, which is a, a cinematic style that uh, started roughly uh, around 1943. It's always very difficult to put uh, you know, a frame of time and lasted until about the beginning of the 50s. So, um, Vittorio De Sica and other directors at the time, Roberto Rossellini, Luchino Visconti, they are considered really the the starter of this uh, cinematic style. Um, It is a style that uh, looks at uh, recording... And portraying in films reality, what is happening, what is uh, um, what the people of the at the time are experiencing. And clearly as it is, uh, you know, a, a style of mid forties, so right at, uh, uh, um, at the at a period where Italy is experiencing the end is going towards the end of World War two and also is experiencing the, the period of uh, um, nearing to the end of uh, uh, fascism, uh, it is a, um, a very important uh, um, period as it looks at, uh, um, at at Italy and it looks at representing Italy in a completely different way from uh, the film that had preceded. Mm. So um, so this this is just roughly just, just to, to, to try to un, to, uh, to define what neorealism is. Um, there are various reasons that really uh, led to neorealism. Uh, there are political reasons, there are economic and uh, um, more um, practical reasons, there are aesthetic reasons that lead to this period. Um, and... On the way, film director decided to um, present uh, um, their topics in films. Uh, so politically, there is very much a change on what was happening before. Um, there is um, the this willingness to uh, try to. Portray and describe Italy as it actually is, um, um, without um, plots that are uh, constructed or full of artificial kind of, um, you know, stories. Um, There are also some practical reason for neorealism. Usually neorealist filmmaker prefer to, for example, film on location in the streets or, or uh, you know, in various parts of the city rather than in the studios. And this was also for a practical reason, because in This period, uh, most of Cinecittà, Cinecittà are the uh, studios of uh, Rome where most of the cinema production was carried out, uh, would have been um, not accessible or the infrastructure were really not there. In fact, uh, a lot of the studios in Cinecittà were used by. Uh, homeless people, as um, you know, a shelter. Uh, so, there are also these uh, uh,
0: practical reasons for, for this. Uh, mm. And well, if we're using this that is a point of contrast, because you're saying that uh, Italian cinema before neorealism was quite different, what, for those who aren't familiar with Italian cinema prior to neorealism, what would you characterize it as? What did it f- visually look like in an aesthetic way? And, um, you know, how did did that differ from neorealism?
3: Yeah, yes. Um, well, um, it, is, it was quite different um, if we consider that Italy for 20 years is uh, um, you know, uh, going through um, a period of a fascist uh, uh, regime and fascist dictatorship. So there is a lot of control in that period on the topics, on the... Um, stories that uh, uh, can be uh, used in in cinema. Uh, Censorship is is quite strict um, and uh, the fascist censorship um, and regime demanded that Italy uh, be portrayed in, um, in a positive light. Let's say um, mm. there were a kind of a, a certain number of topics that were that were not really allowed to be used, um, not just in cinema but also in theatre, in uh, uh, literature. For example, you could not talk about uh, um, suicide, you could not talk about rapes, you could not talk talk about certain topics that were deemed to be um, too uh, controversial for the opinion. Um, In that period that preceded, there are a lot of comedies and the Sika stars in a lot of these comedies um, he also directs the, uh, a number of these comedies there are also a number of films that are, are trying to um, um, portray um, to say the, 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 the idea of the Italian hero uh, for example quite a number of films that uh, portray the the um, Military uh, victories or uh, the experience of the Italian colonies, um, but also a lot of uh, um, comedies. Comedies are probably the films that are most, they, you know, liked and followed by the audience.
0: Yes and obviously if we're thinking about World War 2 and also post World War 1 um potentially comedies would lift the spirits of the nation in times of crisis or despair as well would that be some an element
3: oh absolutely absolutely and um Usually there are comedies uh, set in a kind of a middle-class environment. There are a lot of comedies that uh, in 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 Italian are defined as il cinema dei telefoni bianchi, the white phone cinemas. And these are comedies that, that uh, um, uh, usually um, would be set in a middle-class uh, family environment uh, with a lot of uh, misunderstanding and, uh, um, you know, plot twist. Uh, usually there is a woman and a man and then, 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 then you know that uh, the, that love interest that will end up in a happy ending. Um, so these are the kind of comedy that usually uh, the, the the audience like and ask to see. Mm. Um, the white phone was a symbol of the wealth of the time. It was a symbol of communication and also miscommunication. Um but usually they are fairly conventional and traditional in the way the plot is resolved and um, in the way the roles are very defined so women would have had roles of being mothers or wife Uh, so there are very set roles for this.
0: Mm. And in terms of uh, neorealism and uh, Vittorio De Sica's work I was also interested that he has an acting background that you've just talked about and also a background in the theatre as well. And um, a lot of people nowadays would talk about directors who also have an acting background as having a special insight into acting and perhaps are maybe better directors because of it because they can relate to the actors they're trying to give direction to. Um, I was interested in the actors in this film, Bicycle Thieves, because uh, Vittorio De Sica really chooses people who don't have an acting background and one of the cast members um who plays Bruno Ricci who is uh the little boy a little son of Antonio Ricci who is the main character um there was an interview with him as an adult uh looking back on the casting of that film um and he was saying that uh, to be honest he thinks he was chosen by De Sica because he was an ordinary person um Obviously, I think there's something pretty extraordinary about him as a boy, and um, his acting performance is quite amazing. As is his yeah. father's yes. in the film. Um, but what do you, what are your thoughts, and what's yeah. your understanding of how Vittorio De Sica was a director and how he? Yeah, shows his actors and how that relates to yeah. neorealism. So
3: there are a lot of anecdotes about De Sica as a director and the actors usually used to say that De Sica used to play out all of the parts and show... Um, not just tell them what to do, but really, you know, go on stage and show exactly what they had to do. So he was a very, very precise director in the way that he uh, gave instruction on what the actors had to do. And also, he was also very, um, Particular in the um, in the uh, in the choice of actors for his characters, Uh, for example, for Ladri di biciclette, he 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 had you know in a lot of casting to try to find the perfect Antonio and the perfect child Bruno, and eventually he did. Um, There is also quite an interesting story about this film because uh, um, by the time the Sica decided to film Bicycle Thieves he was also well known in America because his previous film Shusha two years earlier, had really uh, been very positively received by um, American critics. And the producer, David O. who is a very famous producer, he's the producer of Gone with the Wind, for example, Um, he was interested in this film, and he was interested in co-producing Bicycle Thieves, which would have been fantastic because at the time, clearly, uh, fans... To produce a film, were always uh, scarce and, and, and difficult to obtain. But Oselsnik asked the Sika to use Cary Grant as the main <laughs> actor. And the Sika, uh, th- there was a lot of debate and, and, and conversation in between the two, but he completely refused to have someone like Cary Grant. Clearly, Oselznik was thinking about uh, uh, audience and numbers, whereas the Sika was thinking about the integrity of the work that he was doing. Um, he would have never had work with mm. Cary Grant. Uh, the seeker said, I want someone that has got blister on their hands. I want someone that can actually look and feel uh, that part. Um, and the same was for the young boy. So uh, in most of the film that he produced during this period is neorealist films, he uh, really, he search and try to find that perfect actor that could, um, you know, fit perfectly the part he had in mind.
0: Mm. Well, to be honest, from my personal perspective, when I was watching it the first time, and even the second time. You know, seeing those two main characters and the actors who play them, I can't actually imagine anyone else playing them. It's just so perfectly cast. And when you talk about the hands and having blisters, I mean, Vittorio De Sica does actually show um, the hands of Antonio, and you see his face up close in you know wiping it with his handkerchief, and there's this feeling that um, those bodies are kind of lived in and they've experienced poverty and hardship. Um, and I know that uh, Lamberto Maggiorani... Um, yes, Lamberto
3: Maggiorani. Yeah, yeah.
0: He, he was a factory worker. Yes, he was. Uh, and yeah. was, this is, was his first part, I believe. It was his
3: per- first part. And uh, um, apparently the seeker said to, to ask him to promise not to continue with cinema, but I think Maggiorani did. And wasn't very successful, his career to follow. But uh, yes, he was a factory worker. And he was just chosen. Actually, he had gone to the casting with his own son, thinking of uh, um, having his own son playing the part of Bruno. But then the seeker saw him and decided that he was the perfect uh, actor for that part.
0: Yes, indeed. Yeah. And uh, I mean, yeah, Bruno, um, who is played by Enzo Staiola, is just uh, fantastic. Oh, he is. He
3: is, he is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Remarkable. Yeah. He is r- remarkable. And you can see how well it works. Mm. Uh, there is another film that is not as well known by um, the Sica that is called Stazione Termini. And uh, he... This is a film that he actually produced with sales Nick, with uh, Montgomery Cliff and uh, Jennifer Jones. Um, he had wanted to have Jennifer Jones for quite a while, and the film, uh, uh, it, uh, to me, is a beautiful film. I really like it. It's set in Rome in the Stazione Termini, but. You have Montgomery Cliff playing the part of an Italian. So the casting there somehow doesn't quite work. Mm. The story is really interesting. The setting is interesting. But this, uh, um, and this was imposed clearly on the seeker. You can see that uh, it it is not the same I mean there is something that is not really working perfectly there
0: yeah and I think with neorealism and the way that um, Bicycle Thieves is filmed you really do feel like uh, you're watching real life and the street scenes which is the majority of the film is really filmed on the streets yes it does feel so very much authentic
3: it does it feels very authentic Uh, and it is very authentic I mean you can see these uh, uh, the the, the difficult Difficulty, you can really uh, connect, I think, with uh, the struggle that this character are uh, going through. So uh, that's uh, where I think the, the film really sets apart from other dramas or melodramas of the time where you feel there is something that is very constructed, mm. whereas... In neorealist films, you have a much more, um, I think that you you almost feel a compassion for what is happening that is not just related just to the story, but it's more of a a human compassion, if we can say that.
0: Yes. And well, let's talk a little bit about the narrative and the story, because Mm. it is a very simple Story, but I think that's why it's so effective and special. Um, And it's really following a very brief period, a time period of, I don't know, about 48 hours, maybe a bit longer. Um, And it's predominantly between the father and son. That's the main relationship, although the mother is also very important um, and that whole family dynamic. Um, And I'm interested in your understanding of how this story and this narrative of um hardship of trying to find a job after world war ii and struggling for at least a year to even get get a job um then we see antonio get a job at the beginning of this yeah. film which he's so very excited, excited. by and it, it means so much to for many reasons not probably not only his identity as a husband and a father but also to and be a provider yeah. but to just have that kind of sense of purpose and pride Um, but the bicycle becomes this very important part of the job and his um, ability to do this and to fulfill his role as a a father a provider and um, you know and it's kind of the backdrop is this really struggling Italy post-war where jobs are just absolutely scarce and everyone's fighting tooth and nail to survive really. what What are your thoughts on the the narrative, the story behind bicycle thieves and why you think it might be so effective um, as a story?
3: Yes, yeah, the story, as you said, is extremely simple. I mean, it's it's, it's really um, right at the beginning of the film, we find out that, that uh, the protagonist has just been uh, able to have a job after a long time being unemployed. He needs to go around the city to attach uh, posters, and he needs a bike. And so in order to have his bicycle that it was actually, he had left it at a pawn shop, he has to retrieve it he's selling his own bed linen in order to have the money to retrieve it and I'm not really spoiling it because no, this no. is the first 10 minutes <laughs> of the film and finally he has got this bike so the, the, the bicycle is uh, um, a symbol that is very important because the bicycle means mobility, means for him to be able to have the job and provide for this family that had to sell bed linen to have some money, so this is how poor they are. Um, so that this is really then the, the film. It's a it's a quest, uh, it's a, a search of Antonia son around the city to find a stolen bicycle, um, and uh, the 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 story um, is very really loosely based on a book that uh, by the time the, the script were put together uh, what remained of the of the book was just the title really um, and the Sika worked with Cesare Zavattini Cesare Zavattini is one of Italian's most important screenwriters and collaborated with the Sica in Shusha in this film and I think they collaborated together until the 70s so a very long and fruitful collaboration And Zavattini is a precursor of neorealism. He he spoke about neorealism. He, he, He wrote a lot about neorealism. And it was also Zavattini that wanted to have a very simple story. Uh, usually at the time, it wasn't just a script writer. There would have been a team of them. Mm. Um, so much so that one that was in the team left right at the start because of not being able to come to a compromise. Um, there are, and in, in, in fact, one of the criticisms would have been, well, the plot is very simple. Yes, there is a father, a son, and a mother, but the mother is nowhere to be seen after the first few minutes. Mm. You know, so and, and, and usually this is not something that happens in a plot in the cinema. You know, every character we we need to have an ending, um, and this doesn't really happen with bicycle thieves. But Zavattini, when he talks about the film, he says what he wants to. Try to portray his reality, and reality nothing necessarily comes with an ending. And so Zavatini says, "Is every single moment that is important because it's every single moment that is portraying this reality of the the, the life of
0: those people?" Mm. And it's particularly, I mean, heartbreaking to watch. And as you say, you feel this compassion and empathy for the characters because you see that. Uh, you know, Antonio is really so, um, I guess, excited about his role and the the income particularly that he's going to bring in and what that will do for their lives and how that will change their life as a family. Um, But, you know, even in, it's in the first day that his bike is stolen, you know, and we see this kind of, as you say, a quest to get it back, to get things back on track. But then there's also as part of this quest, this really interesting and beautiful relationship between the father and the son um which i feel like is so nuanced and you know to me there's no cliche oh no
3: absolutely there is absolutely no cliche Mm. and when you watch the film and and you see that the 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 character of the father is really multifaceted isn't it is uh at times uh, is not quite very likable, I would say. It can be very harsh with her son. It can be very forgetful. Um, So there is sometimes kind of a frustration as an audience when you watch the film, because you can see what is happening in front of you. And in a way, the main protagonist is not seeing as much. And I think Mm. uh, that's what... uh, the seeker does a lot. It plays a lot with this idea of being able to see and not to see, with this idea of the gaze. Um, we, we see that right from the start with, with the bicycle, uh, when the bicycle, the scene when the bicycle is stolen, uh, the audience, you, you can see it coming. Mm, and the yes. only one who is completely unaware <laughs> is Antonio, who has been so careful all along with his bike. And in right at that minute, is. Distracted, he seems quite distracted uh, during the film. Uh, But is I I suppose uh, there is a a loss of identity. There is a, a strong sense of difficulty for what is happening. So um, we understand why he is distracted. At times, he loses Bruno, you know, yes. along the along the journey. And, you know, Bruno almost gets run over by a truck. He doesn't even realize that what is happening. Mm. So um, I think that De Sica and Zavattini really were able to construct a, a character that is um so interesting and 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 so well rounded
0: yes and you mentioned the gaze and i feel like their gaze and their eyes Are very soulful And a lot of the shots that are are quite meaningful Don't have dialogue It's really about the face And what their expressions are saying at the time And their body language You know, communicates more than words could What are your thoughts about how uh, Vittorio De Sica is employing the use of You know, body language and and facial expressions Which are, you know, it's so much about Acting and embodying a feeling and a moment Rather than text
3: Yeah, I think they are really is so important in the film if we think a film like uh, Bicycle Thieves, I mean you could watch it uh, without uh, the audio and understand yes. what is happening and see, think of the difference with this kind of film and film of the previous uh, uh, decades, uh, they, they were all based on communication and miscommunication, and means understanding and there was all uh, uh, plot built on, 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 on these elements well this is really simple and it is very much on on the look and on the gaze, but another very important element in the Seekers film at this time are the use of children mm-hmm. okay so uh, it's fundamental the the character of Bruno because we look we we see a lot of what is happening through his eyes um, before um Bicycle Thieves, uh, the Sika produced uh, um, filmed Shusha, again it's a story about two young uh, adolescents Um, before then there is another film that is called I Bambini Ci Guardano, The Children Are Watching Us, that is considered a precursor of neorealism. And again, is the story of a boy um, in a middle-class family and the, the, the mother decides to leave the family for another man. And so is the story of the disaggregation of this family and all of the negative events that um, eventuate from uh, uh, this uh, um, this separation uh, and most of the events are looked through from the point of view of the child and again mm. even in this film the gaze of the child is so important in so what the, the seeker is doing is able to strongly criticize the adults by me, by by showing them from a the point of view of a child. And the child mm. is the embodiment of innocence. So I think it is a very interesting mechanism of what he's doing.
0: Yeah. It also reminds me of something that I observed, and I wonder whether you agree or not about Bruno, the character, because often there are moments. In the film, where you see him as a child and he gets upset, and you know, he has a, a typical kind of childlike response to certain situations. But there are other times where he almost seems like a mini adult and he acts in a very mature way, and it seems like he's had to adapt to very difficult, you know, circumstances like poverty and has had to perhaps grow up earlier than most children would need to. Yeah, he kind yeah. of has this dynamic of yeah, yes. both maturity and immaturity
3: yeah i know absolutely and at the start of the film i mean he's a mini copy of the father even <laughs> the way he's dressed he's going to work already he's yeah. so young and he's already going to work um the impact of what's happening in society is felt by the children and you can see it so I think when you watch the film you you constantly may be thinking what is what is the impact going to be with all of these events on the children? Mm. On the other hand, the children are also the hope and for the future they are going to be the next generation um and in neorealist films, I'm thinking of a film like, uh, for example, Rome Open City by Roberto Rossellini. Uh, there is a fantastic scene at the end with these children that walk away because, and, and there is this representation of the children that represent the hope for this society. I think that we need to consider that. Uh, the end of a season for Italy also meant the end of a certain constructed identity. So Italy need mm. not just to rebuild the country, but they, it needs to rebuild an identity. And putting a lot of focus on children, I think it is it, metaphorical of this need to build a, a fresh identity, a new identity.
0: Mm, that's really an excellent point, isn't it? Like... It's certainly, I think Italy's experience um, pre war and also during the war is quite unique and different from um the you know french experience or the english given that they were not on the same side and uh, they were experiencing very different things yeah. um and obviously yeah trying to come back from something that's so difficult is is hard and i think even in the the scenes like at the beginning um and in, and in the middle where we see this landscape and uh, and maybe i'll give an example at the beginning we see um, we're introduced to Antonio, and he's sitting on the ground, and there's just like dirt and broken stones and buildings that look like they've been bombed out, and yep. you know you can see um, bullet kind of divots in walls. I mean, it, there is a quite desolate um, environment that we see at certain times, and and I guess that means that the parts of Italy and parts of Rome are also really, I guess, a character in the film.
3: Yes, yes, I agree I, I, absolutely. I mean, Rome. The city is a character in itself. Mm. Uh, it is not uh, a, a, an environment constructed in a studio. It's that real Rome that is there that needs to be rebuilt. Um, and in later films of the Sika, we see that beginning of uh, the construction of the city that are being rebuilt and the difficulty that that creates as well. Mm. Um, so... Uh, Yes, it's it's the 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 use of the location is uh, uh, really fundamental, paramount in the whole stories.
0: Um, Yeah, and you mentioned there that you know obviously Vittorio de Sica was. Pretty prolific, and he had a a range of films that he produced and created. A lot, a
3: lot. Um, He he directed about 35 films, but he acted in 161, which is a lot of film. Mm. So he was a very prolific actor. He had a very. unusual life um, he had two families uh, at the same time and uh, the seeker was also a gambler so a lot of the choices uh, um, for him as an actor they were often for financial reasons mm. so um, so it, a lot of his films especially after this period uh, that Some, you know, you you would wonder why an actor or a director of his uh, level would accept to do these kind of films that are, you know, forgettable, let's say Uh, they were um you know the 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 reason were really financial reason because uh, he was a you know a, a composite gambler and it was a, for all his life
0: mm mm-hmm. and there are some elements in uh bicycle thieves where we're talking about the husbands and their problems with alcohol, their problems with gambling. And yeah. that is even raised as it is social raised. issues. It
3: is raised. And in fact, in a couple of films, he plays the seeker, the gambler, you know, that doesn't have any money. And this is very ironic because yeah. you know that this is, in fact, uh, you know, his life. Uh, so he was a very prolific actor. Um, and 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 also this period of neorealism it didn't last all that long because uh, although the legacy of neorealist films can still be seen today i can still watch Mm. film now and think oh yes i know where this is coming from neorealist films they weren't really all that successful with the audience you know italian's didn't really like them all that much. They didn't really embrace them as the comedies. Mm. So maybe that for, for for the audience, I mean it is understandable. Um, they are going to a very difficult time and maybe cinema would have been an escape rather yeah. than so confronting.
0: Yeah, seeing their lives reflected. Seeing back. their lives
3: reflected. Mm. But they became very um, acclaimed by critics and other filmmakers because of the importance, because of the change that they represent. And I suppose because they are showing this film are showing that you can tell a story that is that simple mm,
0: mm. and
3: is not constructed.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, you have to watch it is basically the you message. You have to watch it, I think so. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. so
3: you have to watch it, I,
0: absolutely. And it would be great if people could see it on the big screen because it would make, I think, a, bit, a big difference to really immerse yourself in the situation and really, I guess, be enveloped in that beautiful relationship that we see on the screen.
3: Oh, yes. I think it's a great opportunity, this mm. uh, uh, retrospective of the Melbourne Cinematheque. And there are a number of very interesting films. And you can really see uh, how, uh, you know, different in, in genre and the scope they are. And uh, um, it's always, uh, you know, uh, such an opportunity to watch mm. them on the big screen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, and it's so great that we have a number of films um, that that will be showed over a number of uh, weeks. And for the first day, which is tomorrow, February the 12th, uh, Bicycle Thieves is up first at 6.30. Then there's uh, Miracle in Milan at 8.10pm. That's the first week. And then there are a number of other of uh, De Sica's films. One of his later films, The Garden of the Finzi Continis from 1970. Um, Also, the one you've just mentioned a number of times, Shushine, mm-hmm. yeah. Or the, the Italian title would have been
3: Shusha. That's Shusha. what the, the boys would have called out to people to have their boots shine. So... Uh, a lot of American soldiers at the time were in Rome and so these uh, young boys, just to to, to raise a little bit of money, they were shining boots and that's Mm. what they were saying to the soldier. They would say, shusha! (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: really wonderful. And then there's some more um, Two Women, which is uh, the week after February 26th. uh, Marriage Italian Style, which is one of those kind of um, traditional comedies with the relationships Um, and also, yeah, there's just so many other options that you might want to explore and find out for yourself if you um don't get along to some of these films but are there uh, just um i guess to finish our discussion are there other films not in this retrospective that you really love of vittorio de sica because he has a number of other films in this neo-realist period yeah
3: i think one that is not in the retrospective is umberto d Mm. which is a, a, a beautiful film um and in fact, the uh, Sica said it was one of his favorite films, the one that he was mostly proud of. Uh, Umberto was also the name of his father. It's not a story about his father, it's a story about a, a, a retired man, a pensioner. And it's a story about uh, the city and about the loneliness of the city and all people. So it's really touching. Mm. And that's a, a film that I really like. Um, Another one that I really like is Stazione Termini, uh, which is a film uh, is, is the film he produced with uh, um, uh, David o. Selznick. Uh, it, the setting is interesting. The whole film is set within the um, Rome train station that had just been built, and uh, is more of a melodrama but I'm, I, I, I love melodramas. Yeah. That's, that's why. Um, but it's a very interesting story of two characters and all other stories of people that move around in the train station. Um, yeah, yes, I, I was thinking Umberto think, D is a great yeah, one. Yeah. Umberto D. But yeah. also The Children Are Watching Us is a very interesting mm. film. Uh, very controversial for the
0: time. So basically hopefully people can get along and if they can't get along that Bicycle Thieves is quite readily available yes it is yeah um, it's the most easily accessible for those who might want to watch it um from home which I know you can do uh, through Apple and iTunes and Google Play and um you can get it I've I own the DVD you can yeah. buy the DVD in yes. many places and it has actually been restored it um, has been
3: restored yeah but uh it's always so good to see them on the big screen and a film like for example The Garden of the on the Finzi Control it is beautifully shot and it's really mm-hmm. nice to see it on on the big screen yeah
0: no it's you can't really compare it can you um now I hope people can get along to your lecture tonight if they're interested Thank to you. explore more which I'm sure they'll be excited to do now that they've heard some of what you um you know know about this wonderful subject and Vittorio De Sica's work um so your lecture is tonight it starts at six thirty, yeah. it runs until 8 p.m yeah um and it is an really an introduction to the actor and director Vittorio De Sica and it is at um, 233 Domain Road in South Yarra Um, and it is really uh, just wonderful to see that it's kind of supporting this retrospective and um, it's can you uh, perhaps share with us the title of the institution who is um, putting on this lecture
3: Uh, Ah
0: Instituto Italiano
3: di Cultura, so the Italian Institute of Culture in uh, South Yara that is uh, collaborating with the uh, Melbourne Cinematheque uh, with this uh, retrospective.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's been such a pleasure to talk thank you, with you Amy. about this and to see your passion for cinema and Vittorio De Sica. And uh, I really do hope that people get along and that they at least watch Bicycle Thieves. So I know, um, you know, that people have had access to such a beautiful moment in cinematic history.
3: Yeah. Okay, thank you very much Amy thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure Thanks. I've been speaking with Elisabetta Ferrari, she is a lecturer in Italian Studies at the School of Languages and Linguistics at the University of Melbourne and we've just been talking about the director and actor Vittorio De Sica and the upcoming season and retrospective that's being put on by the Melbourne Cinematheque and it starts tomorrow night um, and I believe it's at the Capitol Theatre uh, because Acme is being renovated and um, getting itself uh, together so it's a wonderful cinema that you can um, visit which is uh, off Swanston Street and uh, yeah I hope you do get along if you can I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm